Open finance could define the future of financial services. That's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces creating a report to explore it in greater depth, scrutinizing the lessons learned from open banking and outlining key policy considerations for its implementation. We also consider its impact on financial services providers and their potential benefits to consumers. Download the report for free at bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Financial Services Community Take a Stand in Support of Black Lives Matter, Starling and Marquetta's New Raises, and TrueLayer Team Up with the UK Government on Open Banking. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 433 of Fintech Insider. I'm Lida Glyptis, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing today, Simon? Uh, all things considered, not too bad, Leader. Grateful to have FinTech to talk about um, and, and grateful to be on the show with you guys today to, to get through it. Hope you're well. Always, always. This is my favorite and highlight of the um, lockdown work, doing the show with you guys. As is now normal, we're joined remotely by some awesome guests. Making their FinTech Insider News debut, we have my personal friend, Nikolai Riki, VP and CTO of Personal Banking at DMB. Welcome to the show, Nikolai. You are the reason I'm here today, so thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lida. I've been trying to do this for a long, long time, Nikolai, finally succeeding. Returning to Fintech Insider, we have Shafali Roy, CCO and COO at TrueLayer. Welcome back, Shafali. How are you today? Very well, thank you, Lida. Thanks for having me. And Alex Fain, Head of Corporate Affairs at Starling. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today, Alex? I'm good. Uh, Great to be here. Let's get started. We wanted to start the show today with a message. At 11FS, we're just a small business, but we have a platform, particularly on this podcast, and we want and need to use this platform to speak up for what we believe in and what is right. We stand with George Floyd and the black community. We stand with all of our employees and our listeners from all backgrounds. We believe we at 11FS and the wider Finta community can and should strive for better. That begins by making a stand, but continues by making a change. We've been asking the fintech community to send us suggestions of minority fintech founders that deserve attention, to surface the successes that have perhaps been overlooked. By telling these stories, others can see what is possible and we as a community can support and actively promote those who do not have the access and privileges that many of us do. We want to do our part to support the movement for equality and justice, even if our way of doing so is small. Reach out to us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com with your ideas, suggestions, and recommendations. We just want to call some of those organizations out that have already been brought to our attention. Simon, do you want to start? Absolutely. Thank you, Lida. Um, so the first one is BLCKVC or Black VC. It was formed in 2018 to uh, connect and advance Black venture investors by providing a focused community built for and by Black venture investors. Only 3% of venture capitalists are indeed Black, uh, with even fewer controlling the 80 plus billion invested annually in the U.S. They've created a venture open source collection on Medium to make this knowledge more accessible and digestible for anybody to looking who's looking to break into VC and accelerate their learning as an investor or grow their startup. Search for BLCK VC on Medium or Twitter to learn more. Black and brown founders, providing black and Latin American founders with community, education and resources for building tech companies when they're cash strapped. They have organized several national events and offer a virtual training program to help Black and Latin American entrepreneurs at the earliest stage of their journey to cross the chasm from idea to revenue. For more information, visit blackandbrownfounders.com or follow at BBFounders on Twitter. And uh, Operation Hope uh, is actually a global leader in financial dignity and economic empowerment programs for low to moderate income youth and individuals and families in underserved communities. In the 25 years they've been running, they've empowered more than 2.8 million adults and youth uh, with financial dignity and directed over $3.2 billion in economic activity into disenfranchised communities. Uh, They believe that if you change credit scores, you can change outcomes. Uh, Find out more at operationhope.org. Sparkle, 
This week saw the launch of Sparkle, a new digital banking venture by Uzoma Dozi, entrepreneur, banker, tech advocate, and former CEO of Nigerian Diamond Bank. Sparkle is a digital platform combining financial, lifestyle, and business support services for Nigerians across the globe. The Sparkle mobile app provides Nigerian individuals and entrepreneurs with a range of digital tools, including visibility of a spending pattern, saving tools, the ability to split payments and bills, and to send and receive money in the Sparkle network and with other local banks. Sparkle has partnered with Visa, Microsoft, and PwC Nigeria. To find out more, visit sparkle.ng or find their app on the Apple and Android app stores. Elsewhere across the financial services industry, there's been an outpouring of support for George Floyd and his family and the wider black community. Here's some highlights. Mark Mason, CFO and Citibank, wrote an extremely powerful blog calling out systemic prejudice and the need to confront it and speak out against it. Monzo tweeted, we stand with George Floyd and the black community, followed by a donation and links to many other resources to urge others to give their support and educate themselves. Starling retweeted them and added their support. Acorns is raising money for George Floyd's fund. Alloy is matching employee donations. Robinhood donated $500,000 to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. SoFi, Cash App, Square, Vero Money, and many more took a stand on their Twitter in support of Black Lives Matter. BNY Mellon, MasterCard, and American Express have also offered statements promoting diversity, inclusion, and zero tolerance on racism. And recent Horowitz have launched a new talent and opportunity fund and program designed for entrepreneurs who have the talent, drive, and ideas to build great businesses, but lack the typical background and resources to do so. This is a very sobering and sober um, tone for our for our, um, our show, for those of you who listen to us often, for those of you who've been here with us. But there is no other way to respond to what is happening in the last few days. Um, it feels like an unprecedented stand from the financial services community have you guys seen anything like this before? I, th- I think there have been um, uh, actions before. I remember in uh, 2015 in the States when um, there was some um, uh, statewide legislation, a number of states were trying to introduce um, pro-discrimination legislation, which would allow, um, uh, they were religious objection bills, so they would allow you to legally discriminate against other people by citing your own personal religious beliefs. And uh, there was concern that, that, that this would have a terrible effect on um, uh, freedom of expression and um, of action. And Tim Cook, some of the big American banks piled in and it was it was part of a number of occasions when the CEOs of big corporate um, big corporates in America you know added their voices um, and spoke out so I think they have shown that it works and that people stand up and take notice I haven't seen anything quite on this scale but it, it's not the first time that corporates have used their their voice to stand up uh, this way we saw something similar, didn't we, uh, Alex, when uh, there was a, a number of mass shootings and a number of organizations backed away from the NRA. And, and indeed, um, corporates taking a stand can really make a difference. Um, Nike coming out in support of Colin Kaepernick uh, when it was, uh, with, there was, uh, I can't believe it's, it, it, there was even a controversy, but quote unquote controversy about taking a knee and protesting, uh, which, you know, uh, by contrast now seems so, um, so relaxed and, and, and so calm and such a dignified way of having to protest and and is uh, uh, versus extremes that people now feel pushed to um I think about this as somebody in financial services and moving from you know not only having a platform and, and trying to uh, help in in whatever way we can, but also the action we can take um and and I think about uh you know sort of how uh, prejudice can be systemic I think about how we think about credit uh, historically, and how poverty is so interwoven with prejudice, and how uh, enabling people to get access to credit uh, can enable people to get access to better financial outcomes, and, and indeed to access to financial literacy. So I'm sure that there are many good efforts out there. I know some of the folks in alternative credit scoring and alternative lending have been doing good work in this space for some time. Um, but I, but I really hope we see more of that. I mean, I know Shafali at Truelair, people often work with the data that somebody like you guys can provide to do things in a different way. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think it's it's astonishing the the, the change that has happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I think, Lida, your word of it being very sobering is so apt here. Uh, I think in, in the past, we've seen big corporations globally take a stand or react 
to environmental disasters and climate disasters and, and, and natural disasters. But this is the first time I think as a community globally and corporates across every vertical has thought about the human element and the inequity that we have on the planet and what we need to do about it. So I think fintechs, uh, you know, our product, uh, Trulia, uh, certainly we, we have a product that looks at data and, and yes, absolutely to, you know, the, the point you're making, Simon, about trying to have inclusion and, and, and uh, access to financial literacy and access to finance. Absolutely. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, it's absolutely secondary to the human element here that we have to talk about and we have to acknowledge um, and the rampant racism and the rampant inequality and the rampant discrimination that happens in every single vertical across the planet. And so um, I'm really proud that I'm part of a community that has taken such a stand. And I think I hope we do more uh, and we need to do more because that's the only way all of us collectively as a community will make this better. I, I could not agree more with you, Shafali, and I must admit I have found myself, um, for those of you who know me well, surprisingly lost for words with everything going on and just incapable of articulating the the depth of feeling that it causes. And and as an industry, it's been it's been touching to see people mobilize on an individual and a company level. People publicly say this is this is disgusting and we don't stand for it. Um, but at the same time. To your point, should we be doing enough? Both in, uh, are we doing enough, and should we be doing more? Both in terms of the products, and in terms of our own access and representation. Um, and, and I would say, having spent most of my career in this industry, we have a very long way to go. I mean, Nikolai, you you sit in possibly the most diverse organization I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Um, it takes work and it takes conviction. Yeah, it's something you need to do every day. You need to have focus on diversity and and making everyone uh, equally important in society. And I think in in Norway, this is uh, we're very mature in this area, but we still need to do that that fight on a daily basis. And I suppose the commitment we can all bring to this, uh, and I'm doing that because I I am not in the studio and I'm not looking at the producer, is bring a commitment that we will continue using this platform to push to be present, to stand up, to be counted, to acknowledge, um, even when the events of, uh, of recent days have stopped dominating the news cycle. And we look forward to hearing from all of you guys about minority fintech founders, organizations dedicated to this space, so we can help where we can. So please, please reach out to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter, email podcasts at 11FS, um, reach out to your favorite host, but in the meantime, let's look at what else is happening in the industry. Starling Bank raises 40 million as SME banking business picks up. This is a story from Finextra, although we're about to hear it from uh, the authority themselves. Starling Bank has raised a further 40 million from existing investors, JTC and Marion Chrysalis Investment Company, bringing the total raise this year to 100 million. The new round of funding will be used to grow its SME banking arm, where they hold a 2.6% share of the UK's SME banking market. It has almost £500 million sterling of SME lending on its balance sheet, with further commitments raising the total to almost a billion. As an app-based bank, Starling says it has seen robust customer acquisitions since the lockdown, especially in the business account channel, where daily signups have accelerated from the start of the year. Starling accounting their BBL and CBILS commitment as part of their 900 million BCR commitments to SME lending, and as a result, are at 65% of the way through their target ahead of time. Starling updated their BCR that it has now lent out 300 million in BBLs and is currently deploying an additional 300 million via funding circle under the CBILS. Amazing, amazing news for the economy and for SMEs. And we're very lucky to have you with us today, Alex. We have to turn to you first on this one. Can you tell us a bit more about what the raise means for Starling and a bit about your uh, BCR commitments? Yes, well, we when we were awarded a £100 million grant last year by BCR, and that stands for Banking Competition Remedies. For those who don't know, it's an independent fund that was uh, set up um, uh, as a sort of quid pro quo for RBS's uh, bailout during the financial crisis. They had to divest themselves of a, a bunch of money. Um, one of the, you know, we made a big commitment to building out our SME bank and to building up our SME lending. Uh, we uh, set to work 
building a lending platform and we were getting it ready. We are using this software that we built with that money um, to do our coronavirus-related lending. So that's bounce-back loan scheme lending and um, coronavirus business interruption scheme loans. Um, I know that some people have said we shouldn't be allowed to use the uh, B-bills and C-bills uh, lending uh, against our um, BCR targets. Um, uh, the BCR has agreed that we can. We think we should be able to. Um, uh, the money that we are lending um, is the bank's money. It's not government money. We are lending um, the bank's money to uh, customers for BBLS and Sybil's loans. And um, uh, if those uh, loans fall into default or arrears, we will have to pursue the normal collections and recovery process. So it's it's a normal thing. But I think what this shows is that actually uh, something's gone right. Um, the BCR set up this fund to increase choice and uh, in the SME uh, banking and lending sector. And uh, it's happened. And we, we've been very, very proud to become a lender. We've actually, on, under the B-Bill scheme, we've actually lent uh, $468 million, uh, to 16,000 small businesses, including two and a half sole traders. Our average loan is about 26,000. We would be the first to admit that there has been a lot of bad publicity around our bounce back lending. Uh, a lot of people have uh, complained on Twitter where they haven't got lending. Um, uh, we're sorry uh, that people were disappointed, but we think that uh, we are uh, applying the rules correctly and um, we are very, very pleased for the, for the businesses we have been able to support. Uh, well done, Alex. I think first and foremost for, for getting all of that done in such a crucial time. A, a couple of things stood out to me. I mean, I was quoted in the press sort of saying um, uh, some some not too positive things, but I think it was, um, as all these things are, a little bit out of context. I think it's hard when you are lending to people who are in such desperate need, but somebody has to lend to those people in such desperate need, and somebody has to say no to some of those people in case there are financial crime risks or other things. So um, there's absolutely no doubt that doing this stuff is really, really hard. Um, so well done for, for getting it all out. Um, the thing that struck me is, is almost um, that broader point as well is, is whilst um, it's been able to react during a pandemic, uh, there's also the fact that there is a business being built here that, that really stands out. Uh, a lot of people point at the um, the challenger banks in the UK and say, oh, well, how are they ever going to make money? How are they ever going to be sustainable? But the, the releases here that stuck out to me were sort of having 155,000 business accounts, 1.4 million current accounts, but also a deposit base of 2.4 billion, which is not an insignificant deposit base for, for a UK bank um, to, to be at. Um, and, you know, it's so early in its life. Do you see sort of, um, you know, how does the investment fit with the long-term strategy? Is this sort of a, a, a desire to get to profitability? And, and how much can you share kind of in and around those those key statistics? Yeah, well, obviously, we would love to be profitable. We're not there yet. Um, I think that, you know, we, we had said prior to the uh, pandemic that we were aiming uh, to hit profitability um, uh, sort of 2021. That is probably going to be a bit delayed because um, every, business as usual has been interrupted, but we are still very much on that path towards profitability. Um, uh, we, um, we haven't furloughed any staff. We have, you know, we're still adding customers. Our, as you can see, our deposits are growing. We've, um, we're, in, we're in pretty good shape, but our, uh, our eventual um, uh, hitting our first month of being purely in profit will probably be a bit delayed, but that is very much still on the agenda. I mean, just we're, we're a digital bank. We're built for this kind of situation. Um, uh, all the fintechs here um, are in, in that situation. And um, if nothing else, this pandemic has shown, um, ex helped accelerated the shift to digital and shown um, its strengths. Absolutely. And um, I'm going to throw something to Nikolai. Um, you guys have done some really interesting work in this space, particularly around SME lending. Uh, it's always useful and interesting to hear a perspective from a different country, a different economy. Do you want to talk to us about how you tackled that challenge? We've been uh, challenged by the government to create a solution so that we could easily uh, take loan applications from businesses in need. And, and we'll lend out the money uh, with the state guarantee backing it. So I think we, we've been really responsive with our, uh, with our DevOps teams building thing that was uh, really done through Easter and it went live and 
and we're supporting the community with uh, our financial strength. So we'll be part of the solution in Norway, uh, helping uh, the businesses. Under the, the my favorite motto of keeping Norway running, uh, which I must admit gives me a little bit of a flutter every time I hear it. Um, but the reality is, and that's um, agnostic of which economy we operate in, that the expectation, particularly because of the situation um, that we're all we're all in, is that something between forty and sixty percent of those SME loans will be given to companies that will not be able to turn the situation around. The FT expected, particularly for the UK market, but also more widely, the forty to sixty percent of those loans will end in default. And the reality is, no matter whether you're a digital challenger or an established player, that's an eventuality that you cannot afford to have. Um, on your books, you can't carry that. No one can carry 60% default rate. It's a very sobering thought. Um, how, how, do you, how do you tackle that? How do you, how do you balance that with a responsibility to, to lend, with a need to keep the economy going, with a commitment made to the government in Norway's case, to the BCR in, in Starling's case, to your stakeholder shareholders, um, shareholders, stakeholders and customers in every bank's case? How do we balance it? And that's a question for everyone, not not to put Alex and Nikolai on the spot. Um, well, if anyone has the answer, please please tell tell us. It's it's a really really difficult thing, and the, and the government has made it very clear that they just want to to get the money out into the hands of small businesses, and they will think about that later. But it goes against the grain for bankers to do this. You know, bankers are by nature used to regulation and to following all the the you know risk uh, uh, and other regulatory um, parameters. So it, it, is, it is a very difficult thing. A lot of these businesses will survive and will turn them around. And, you know, I've been talking to some of our customers who've, who've, who've got bounce back loans, and it's wonderful to see what they're using them for. So uh, that, that, that's been very exciting to see. But, but it is a big issue. And it is something I would say where we need a little bit more clarity from the government of what their plan is to support these businesses, because we are, as things stand right now, we are required to pursue these loans when if defaults happen and, and to recover the money, um, the guarantee is available, but not till we've exhausted the whole recovering collections process. So um, we would really like to hear a bit more. Some clarity. On, on, on. Um, and and it's, it's an interesting one. So let me stay with it for a, for a moment, although none of us have an answer and we all know what the the thing we would all like to do is, but at the same time, the, the complexities that everyone's faced with are, are, are not easily dismissed. So going back to that FT report, the expectation that uh, 40 to 50% of the 608,000 companies that have taken out bounce back loans will default means A, that many businesses would go bust with a big impact on the economy, but it also means that those loans will create a massive hole in, in, the, in the balance sheet of the bank that has uh, underwritten them. Now, the FT uh, draws attention to the fact that to get funds out quicker, banks were advising to waive um, some of the more stringent credit checks. Uh, do we expect that to come back to bite? Or do we? And that in some ways ties to the conversation we were having earlier. Do we see this as a, a watershed moment where the way we do credit checks, the way we do lending will change because the world we live in is changing to an, an unprecedented degree on a daily basis? And what we're seeing again and again is that quite a lot of the structures we had were not fit for purpose. If that was not a leading question, I don't know what it was. But Shafali is nodding, so I'll throw it to her first. I'm, I'm nodding madly. It's unfortunate that your listeners can't see me nodding. But look, we so just a bit of context to my answer, I should say, is when when this unfortunate thing called COVID and the pandemic started, we knew that we could see this coming. We could see this coming where we, it was inevitable that the government was going to offer loans to small businesses and offer loans to self-employed individuals so that they could make sure that they were able to pay their rent and buy food and, and put food on the table. So we knew this was coming. And very early on, we had engaged with many government departments to say, you need to be able to access data of transaction history to assess whether individuals who are applying for these loans and applying for these uh, opportunities, financial security opportunities, uh, are qualified for it. And a data a product, which we have, would be that product to show how the history of people's spending methods and spending history will give you a credit score about their viability. So are they qualified for these loans? We talked to quite a few government departments. We talked to the Treasury. We talked to many of the um, government working groups set up 
quite much in the public service specifically to to figure out the COVID um, response. And unfortunately, we didn't hear back from them. Um, and I mean, I know we're talking later on about how Trulia is going to be working with the government on a payments product and payments, but we did talk about data and looking at how can open banking data help the government make better and more informed decisions about how they want to distribute distribute funds. Unfortunately, we were not taken up on it. So the ripple effect, if you see the train coming down the tracks, is in a couple of months and and quite uh, concur with what Alex has said before. Yes, of course, people are going to default. But did we do the right stuff at the beginning to check whether they were uh, qualified for these loans or not? And what was the history of their their transactions and their viability to give it to them? And even if individuals didn't have great credit history, nonetheless, we of course need to support our fellow citizens because this is an unprecedented time that we're living in. However, what were the other safety checks and balances that the government could have put in place, that lenders could have put in place to make sure that eight, nine, 10 months down the track, where we see a high rate of default, these individuals and these small businesses could be protected. And I think we just had an old goal here. We could have done a much better job as a government and as an industry to support um, the government, in fact, down the track to make sure that, God forbid, some individuals could not pay their loans or some businesses were going to fail. We knew that they were going to, and we could have put better checks and balances in place. And the challenge is not going to go away because you are right, Shafali, whether we could have done it on time or not will never be known. But mm. but the reality is what we're facing now, the optimist in me wishes that we would never face it again. But the reality mm. is challenges. This challenge is, is set to last and, uh, and and we still have an opportunity to come back to the table and answer those questions. Um, we will be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break and uh, tell you about our sponsors. We are truly in uncharted waters. Looking to us for guidance. Nothing is more important than building trust right now. This will be the new normal. How can I help? Hear that? That's the sound of change. Right now, business leaders are rethinking, reassessing, and repurposing business as usual to deal with this new crisis. It's a global conversation Salesforce is having called Leading Through Change. And it's all about businesses working together to achieve one simple goal, help. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Learn more at salesforce.com backslash leading through change. This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinex.co.uk. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology. Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. Okay, now back to the news show, where we're going to take a look at some other stories happening in the world this week, starting with Marketa raising 4.3 billion. Sorry, again, Marketa raising at a 4.3 billion valuation. I was distracted by the number. This is a story from TechCrunch. Marketa have just closed a round, giving them $150 million in equity funding. The round values the company at over $4 billion. Last year, it was worth $2 billion, so its valuation has doubled in a year. For those unfamiliar, Marketa provides the tools for financial services platforms to provide cards, wallets, and other payments mechanisms. Customers include Square, Uber, Affirm, Instacart, and DoorDash. As new challenges begin to set up all over the world, this provides a unique opportunity for Marketa to gain new business. They set up an office in London to capitalize on European challenger banks. The CEO, Jason Gartner, said, we're building a single global platform to define and power the future of money for the world's leading innovators. Therefore, they could impact any market around the world, and the money is set to help them with their global expansion. To find out more, we heard from Marketa CMO, Vinya Peters. Let's hear from her now. This was an unusual situation where Marketa wasn't actively looking to raise more capital. An unsolicited opportunity came up from an investor who's one of the highest regarded in the industry. We thought we could use the new investment to accelerate our product and geographic expansion. The investment opportunity was too hard to pass up. 
Marketa feels very lucky to be in a position of market strength. And we've been able to grow during very challenging market conditions as our modern card issuing platform provides critical infrastructure to companies across industries. Our on-demand delivery customers have seen their volumes triple. We've worked with customers like Cash App to help their users get stimulus funds faster. And we've seen demand for contactless payments rise exponentially. Our mission at Marketa is to build a single global platform to define and empower the future of money for the world's leading innovators. This new capital helps us accelerate that mission and will be put directly towards empowering builders to bring the most innovative products to market wherever they are in the world. Do we think that um, Marketa can beat Visa and MasterCard at their own game? Sai, <laughs> you're itching to jump in. Payments is my background. You know, I did five years in thesis and then 10 years since. I, I love the payment space. Um, I don't know if they beat them because they issue co-branded cards with Visa and MasterCard, right? They, they bring volume to Visa and MasterCard. Um, so I don't know if it's about beating them. I think what they've done is they've they've picked up the mantle from something that we probably saw first in the UK, but they've done it in a completely, uh, it's almost a stripe-like kind of way. Um, so what we saw in the UK was global processing services. GPS was kind of the backbone for a lot of the challenge banks, specifically um, Monzo and Revolut, but also a number that emerged um, around that time. People were able to bootstrap what looked and felt like a challenger bank, even though really it was an e-money license in in the nerd terms, uh, and it wasn't a full bank yet, but they got users and they were able to test things and that allowed them to go to the market and get more investment. So you have in the US, Marketa, um, Galileo, and several others that are, are enabling that same sort of thing. But they come with all of the uh, history and, and sort of experience of building uh, companies that are API first, that are platforms and ecosystem first. And, and Marketa is a real example of that, which is why you now see, as they mentioned, uh, yes, Square Cash, but everything from Chime to Acorn to Robinhood, Uber, Affirm, DoorDash, this, this new way of distributing payments and getting payments products to consumers fundamentally changes who can play in banking. You know, we always had the white label co-branded card. You always had like the Air Miles card, but that was different. This is more of a, it's aimed at developers. It's plug and play. You pick it up yourself. You can have the first card working in days. You don't need to sign a contract or go through a long sales cycle. And this is disruptive, I really think, because it brings people into financial services in the US market where interchange is fundamentally different. Like if I'm Uber, DoorDash, uh, Acorn, Chime, and I'm issuing a card, interchange is revenue, and it's decent revenue um, because it's it's sort of you're getting a share of maybe um, 1.9% versus in Europe, you're getting a share of 0.3%. So it's a good revenue line for these businesses before they, they go out. And so uh, I think we'll see more of this. I think we'll see this type of platform take challenger banking in beyond just challenger banks into challenger brands um, and away from the traditional financial incumbents. So it'd be, be interesting to watch how this grows um, and how people react strategically. I want someone to disagree with you so badly right now, but it can't be me because I don't. <laughs> well, I don't disagree with Simon, but I, I just have to say that I, I love this story. I love the idea that they're just sitting around, minding their own business. They weren't doing a fundraise and someone just knocks on their door and says, please, please take $150 million from us. I, I just love it when, when I think of uh, how hard um, fintechs normally have to work to, to raise um Yeah, why that, that hasn't happened to the rest of us, I, I wonder. And I love it. And I love the way that it was told in that, in that clip. It's so sort of matter of fact. Yes. Do you believe it? I'm sure there had been previous conversations. There normally are. I mean, if anyone wants to knock on my door um, with 150 million, our producer can give you my address. But I believe that they were not actively pursuing around. I must admit, I, 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 I'm finding, I'm, I like the story, but I'm finding it next to impossible to believe that Someone just set, came and said, "Here, take my hundred and fifty million but i do I do believe that it was serendipitous serendipity does does drive a lot of of the work we do i I do believe that, but it is an interesting question to raise. Does funding equal market success and stability right now, particularly in this context we um We also hear that uh, Monzo look like they're raising again and um on the back of a fairly recent raise 
And on the back of having laid off 8% of 8, not 80, my enunciation going out the window, of their workforce just this week as a response to the pandemic. So in the wider context of, and, and picking up on what you were saying earlier, Alex, unprecedented disruption for everyone. Uh, and now it's not just the, the incumbents feeling it, it's also the challengers. What does it say about the landscape to have that 150 million in your pocket when you didn't even need it, apparently? Well, I, I guess I guess it it you know it gives you a very very comfortable buffer. Um, I'm sure they'll find ways of expend you know of spending it and investing it uh, uh, in growth, which which is is clearly what what companies need to do. But I think on the question of fundraising, if you are fundraising and having to uh, accept um, uh, fundraising at a lower valuation than your last round, that that comes with strings attached, and you have to do certain things. About about your personnel, about your staff numbers, about your overheads. Usually, that's that's often how it works, um, uh, and that's very difficult for companies who've not been in that position before. That is very true, and um, chances are we'll be seeing more of that as uh, as this disruption continues. Okay, moving on. UK government and True Layer strike open banking deal. The Crown Commercial Service, part of the UK's Cabinet Office, has added TrueLayer to its payment acceptance framework. This means that TrueLayer can now provide public sector organisations with its payment initiation service. And payment initiation allows payments for goods and services without credit or debit cards. So this helps the financially excluded who cannot get debit cards. And the fees are much, much lower, saving customers a lot of money. As part of the agreement, the CCS has pre-assessed and approved TrueLayer's PIS for public sector procurement. This means any government organization can quickly set up with TrueLayer to accept payment via the payments API. That's fantastic news for both uh, the UK economy and TrueLayer. Shafali, we have to turn to you first on this one. So excited to have you with us for a comment. Can you put this into context for us? What does it mean and how it came about? Sure. Thanks so much for the opportunity, actually, to spend a bit of time talking about it. Um, we we talked to the government. So as, as you may know, the context for that is, is every couple of years, the government reassesses their payment models and their payment rails. Uh, and because Open Banking came into play in January of 2018, the government decided that they were going to include payment initiation services as part of their payment framework uh, and an opportunity to offer those sorts of alternative payments to British citizens when we were paying for goods and services through government websites. So the tender process was a rather long and laborious one, I must say, but we've been talking to the government CCS team for nearly two and a half years. And we had to obviously put in a tender, put in a bid. um, And very pleasingly, we were chosen as as a, a provider to their payment initiation services. Uh, It means that the government now can offer on their website through gov.uk and any integrated payment service on on any individual, I should say, government website, uh, the opportunity to do a bank-to-bank payment through Trulia. And so it's a very vanilla flow. You pay and initiate a payment. The government uh, website will initiate a payment in-app or on website uh, to the individual's bank account. And you could pay for a service, whether that's paying your income tax, whether that's paying for a passport, whether that's paying for a license through DVLA. Initially, you can use that government website, um, consent, obviously, to that government website, accepting a payment and um, initiating a payment on your bank account. And in a multitude of seconds, the payment for that service goes from your bank account to the government's bank account on Trulia Rails. It's effortless. It's simple. It's cheap, i.e. nothing. And um, it happens in a matter of seconds. And so what we're trying to do, and I think, uh, you know, really, I'm really immensely proud and, and really thrilled, actually, that the government has looked and been so forthright and forward thinking about adding this payment reel to their to their services, because it also means that the settlement is instantaneous. It also means the service is provided instantaneously. Um, and it means as a citizen, you get to partake in a brand new way of doing payments that the government championed. I mean, let's not forget that open banking came about because of PST2, sure. But the, the banking uh, environment in the UK is so conducive to disruption. The CMA was very participant in it. The OBIE was very participant in it. And the UK arguably is, is ahead of every other European country when it comes to payment initiation and and integrating uh, PSD2 in in the UK. So to have their own government and their own government service uh, initiate this and have it as part of a payment rails in a year after it came into play is really quite remarkable. And and we're really thrilled that the government chose us and certainly that we can be a part um, part of this system. 
Fantastic and uh, very exciting. Well, I guess the, the, the first and obvious question is, we've been waiting for open banking to do something exciting for a long time, so it's nice to see. What do we feel this means for open banking in the UK and overall the anywhere else in the world where finally um, the cogs of open banking are beginning to move? I think so. I mean, I think if you look at having the entire British government go, you know, we believe in this. And so we're going to add it as part of a, 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 a revamp of the entire payment framework. I, I can't think of a better validation of uh, a new way of a new technology of a new system. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think it's going to iron out, as you say, Lita, the, the cogs, because we're going to find out very, very quickly whether it's a system that can be sustained, whether it's stable, whether it's reliable, um, and whether or not it's something that we're going to really you know, put our money where our mouth is, truly, because we've been talking about it for two years. And it's slowly coming up, I think, on the data side and the account information side. It's, it's ramped up quite significantly, and you see that in, in a plethora of different products and services, when it's to do with PFMs or lending or credit scoring. And payments has had a bit of a lag, but I think it's going to be the big disruptor. Um, it's going to really change the way you think about credit card schemes and think about uh, how do you want to use debit cards or standing orders and all that sort of stuff, because it's all instantaneous. So Here's the proof of the pudding. I mean, you have a government of a country who's part of open banking saying, let's use it. Let's see. I mean, I think it, it's a really big, big leap forward. Whether or not it's adopted uh, widely across Europe, I think this could be the test case. Uh, but I think as you see across the world, uh, Australia is doing it quite heavily and Australia has actually taken it way further than the UK. And they've gone full financial products, open finance, not just uh, open banking. Uh other geographies across Latin America, in, in Asia, all looking at and looking at the UK model and saying they did a great job. Let's see how we can do better. And so I don't know. It's, I think to me, I think it's a huge testament and validation of this idea of let's disrupt finance and let's disrupt payments. And here we go. We're going to buy into it. I like that a lot. And I think if you look at it purely from a business case perspective, there had to be a lot of cost in dealing mm. with payments. And this is a potentially a lower cost route, uh, which every kind of merchant would be interested in. Nikolai, I'm interested in your perspective, looking at it from Norway. Um, what do you guys already have? And Because and, I know, um, for example, identity works very different in, in your region um, and KYC AML looks and feels very different. How, how do you look at this from a, from a, a, a Norway perspective? So, so first of all, we have a local payment scheme that is really cost efficient so that we don't have to use the international schemes for local payments. Uh, and also the uh, identity, the digital identity is issued by the banks in a common identity that also is used by the government. So I think he, the partnership between uh, the financial sector and the public sector is, is really matured in Norway which means that we both offer a local payment scheme that is cheap to use for our citizens. Uh, so there, I don't think this is something that we'll need because we already have the, the local uh, payment scheme available. But I think this is something that will uh, be uh, beneficial to the countries that doesn't have local schemes already, where open banking will actually make uh, financial services be cheaper for, uh, for uh, everyone in the society. I was going to phrase the question very differently, Nikolai. I was going to ask if coming from an API first country, you're listening to our conversation and think we're in the Stone Ages, but uh, but Simon is he's always politer than me. And it is an interesting one because as you say, Nikolai, you're in an environment that has tackled a lot of these questions, whereas we're sitting in the UK in an environment where for a long time has looked at open banking and gone, Maybe, maybe not. Uh, this move is definitely great for open banking. Um, it's great for anyone who would have been financially excluded by fees or access to services. It's definitely great for TrueLayer. But um, as we said at the top of the show, we've published a report on this. Um, and one of the things we're particularly interested in is whether actually partnerships like this one are the first step. Is the reason – this is not in the report. This is just me um, – is the reason why this hasn't happened a lack of ability by quite a lot of the players that would need to take the first step to imagine what this would look like? And it takes the sort of partnership um, that you guys are bringing to the table, Shafali, for the, this thing to keep going. 
I think so. I, I think we needed a big player. And I, I mean, you can't get bigger than the, than the British government. And the British no, you, you've done well there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it takes a player to go, this is actually a good idea. Let's now prove it. Um, and let's see where it goes. And I think if you think about, you know, the even even the regulators, I mean, I think, honestly, if we go back to 2017, 2018, I think as an industry, we just did such a poor job of educating the British consumer and educating the European consumer. Let's let's be wide and broad about this, about what open banking would be and what it meant for them and their consumer products and services. And I think we did a terrible job of saying to the consumer, it relies on your consent, but don't worry, this is secure, you'll be privacy protected. And all of the checks and balances that you have to have are in place for you to kind of go, hey, don't worry about it. This is a good thing. You should think about it and you should try this alternative method. And then you fast forward to 2019 and this today, 2020, where you look at the OBIE, the FCA, HMT and a number of players and and um entities like ours working together to say, let's bring this forward and not just think about open banking, but open finance. Um, I sat on the FCA's working group on open finance with HMT and OBIE, and it was a really wonderful, concerted, collaborative effort to say, let's take this further and let's see how we can open it further and not just look at banks, but look at financial data, insurance, mortgages, savings, investment loans, and open that gamut up because then the British consumer gets this holistic view of their finances to bring them into the market and to bring them into better products and services so that they're included. They're not left out. And I think, Simon, as you said very early on, thinking about financial literacy and financial awareness, it doesn't just happen because I have a bank account. It has to happen because I've got everything else in play uh, to give me this really lovely picture of how crap am I at managing my money or how good am I at it? And what can you do to give me a better service? So I think this is the first big validation, I think, in about two years that we've had. I'm very happy and proud that we're part of that, that validation. But it opens up a conversation for the smaller players to say, what else can we do and how much can we push? Absolutely. And and you should be proud. And we hope to have you back on the show in the next few months to tell us how it's going. But for now, it's time to move to the other side of the world. Brazil's new bank reaches 25 million customers across Latin America. Brazil's new bank yesterday reached 25 million customers on its seventh anniversary, making it by far the largest independent digital bank in the world. This phenomenal scale grew during the first quarter of 2020 by an average of 42,000 users per day across its markets of Brazil and Mexico. The bank has added 10 million users in the eight months since October 2019, where it announced it had reached 15 million users milestone. They have like two times more customers than my country, her citizens. Operating in a region where half the population is unbanked and offering a free current account, debit card and credit card has given Newbank a huge opportunity for growth, which its team has clearly seized. According to these figures, 20% of Newbank's customers have never had a credit card before and 80% of its customer signups come from unpaid referrals. Is everyone stunned by those numbers? I'm going to make it worse. By comparison, Monzo's customer base across UK and the US currently sits at around 4.2 million. Revolut's European customer base sits at around 10 million, and Germany's N26 counts around 5 million customers. These numbers are staggering. And of course, yes, Brazil is a big country, but these numbers are staggering. Lita, these are clearly phenomenal numbers, and they're not alone, right? So you've got... Um Belvo in Mexico that's raised $10 million recently, and they've built an API platform that it can use to access and interpret end-user financial data to build better, more inclusive financial products, which will be near and dear to the heart of, of Shafali and everything that's been uh, we've been talking about earlier. It also speaks to the story earlier about how uh, Marketa were looking at the Latin American market um, and just the scale of the fintech opportunity in LATAM generally. Uh, you know, If you speak to uh, other bankers and uh, in the Brazilian market, that they're, they're bamboozled by how are they growing at this pace without building up a massive default risk. Um, and I think maybe the you know we don't know until uh, a few years down the line when this comes through the cycle whether or not they are doing that. And you know the Brazilian market historically hadn't had a lot of credit products for the mass market. Uh, if you were middle class, you were fine. But if you were everybody else, they just it didn't exist. So they were serving a massive unmet need. There was huge hunger for it. Um, but if they've done this right. Um, and they can they can maintain a path to profitability, that, that all important thing. Um, Shafali, what were your thoughts? 
Uh, I was just going to say something about the emerging markets, which is I think we we just underestimate the emerging markets in such a woeful way. When you look at Brazil and Argentina, or you look at uh, even Southeast Asia and some of the countries there, whether it's uh, Vietnam or to a lesser degree, um, the Philippines or Indonesia, and who, to be fair, are not emerging, but they've emerged and they're developing, developed, in fact, Um we, we underestimate the potential there because there's so much that goes on in the uh, unbanked and people who are not included in the financial economy that when you have systems and and, uh, and, and companies that are mobile first because we look at the, the telco attrition and the telco adaptation or adoption rather in those economies and they're using such clever ways to think about how do you bring people who are traditionally not in the economy and not having banks and not having access to financial services, but they do have access to phones. And how do you bring that and use that tool to bring them into the economy? That is kind of phenomenal. I also think about India. I mean, I'm Indian and I grew up there, but most of um, my fellow countrymen in India and country women don't have access to uh, technology that we have. Um, they also are illiterate and they also are financially illiterate, but they have access to phones and they have access to that sort of telephony networking, which allows them to participate in the financial economy. So I think we think a lot of, so Newback is, is a phenomenal story and we always look at it uh, with awe and we certainly keep our eye on it. I think Latin America for Trulia is something that we're looking at. We're looking at Southeast Asia. Uh, we're not looking as, as interestingly or as um, uh, opportunistically at the Americas or Canada because even though there's so much happening there on the open banking side, uh, Latin America is much more interesting. Africa is much more interesting. India, Southeast Asia is in infinitely more interesting for us because we just see the growth and the potential um, and people being so much in hunger for new technologies that gets them into this financial economy and this thing called open banking that, uh, you know, for us, new bank is is the ultimate in terms of what, what the potential is. I bet. And I should be very careful what I say here because um, a couple of years ago, I came out very enthusiastically in favor of India's uh, UPI and I got ah. Twitter death threats. Um, which, which I guess means I've arrived in terms of the Twitter sphere. But, uh, but as I, as I'm about to, uh, to start talking about, uh, the Brazilian market, I should be very careful, um, to say uh, it is always danger to, dangerous to compare different, um, parts of the world just because we think they're in, in roughly similar sort of arcs of their, of their evolution. And, and for someone who comes from a fairly small country, I'm still staggered by those numbers in terms of sheer population. Uh, but do we believe that this growth may have something to do with the pandemic? We've seen a, an uptick in um, digital banks, uh, share of wallet across the board. Could it just be uh, a steeper accelerant in that curve? Or do we genuinely believe that new bank stand for something they present a, a, a solution for the underbanked and unbanked, and this is their just desserts. If I had to vote, I'd vote the latter. I think they are serving the biggest unmet need. The fact that they can do end-to-end -end digital makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, Alex, this is something that's probably near and dear to your heart uh, in terms of being a you know a, a bank that's digital end-to-end. -end. Although you know, in in Western markets in the UK specifically, I don't know if Nikolai, you've seen the same. We have actually seen a flight of deposits to the incumbent banks. I don't know if that could happen so much uh, in in Brazil for these segments that just aren't served by the big banks, especially in lending. I don't know if, if Alex, Nicolai, you have views on that. The, the point I was just going to make is, is that I think it's very interesting that um, the, I don't, who, who can tell whether the pandemic has had anything to do with it, but I, I suspect, you know, with it, what it's done is the pent up demand has sort of possibly built up and, and been able to be served. Uh, I think it's it's interesting that in, in countries where um, the infrastructure uh, has been less developed and where mobile and broadband infrastructure is better because they've sort of leapfrogged over several other um, uh, stages in industrial development and just gone straight uh, uh, to, to development. Look at look at Africa and the use of, of mobile banking there. Um, uh, and if you don't have a good um, mobile network, you don't have good mobile banks. You know, even in the UK, there are massive not spots. And it, it's it's a matter of great concern to us as a mobile bank that there are parts of the country where you can't have a Starling bank account because you can't get a decent signal. Um, and this is the UK. Um, and 
so in countries where they have put so much more investment into the the mobile infrastructure because they they've leapfrogged over other developments that that has made that possible very very good point um sadly i have to move us on now as we're getting to the end of the show and we have to round up some of the stories of the week that we didn't have time to cover there is so much happening this week we can't cover it all but these stories deserved a bit of a shout out simon do you want to start yeah, first one we didn't have time to cover comes from Crunchbase News. This is about Brex, the uh, sort of uh, startup in the US, uh, raised $150 million and also laid off staff at the same time. Um, so two weeks ago, we read that Brex had raised that $150 million. Uh, this week, they've announced they're laying off 62 of their staff. They are prioritizing building over growing next year, according to a blog post from their two CEOs. They have two CEOs. I learned that today. Um, they'll also be taking another look at their investments. Some teams will be reduced along with change roles and some people being asked to switch teams. Brex said it would be using the new funding to invest in engineering, product and design. It also planned to use a combination of organic efforts as well as small acquisitions to supplement its hiring and product development efforts. Additionally, when the funding came in, the CEO Enrique Dubregress said, uh, I'm glad this round came together, but if it hadn't, we would have been fine. The capital is so we can play offensive whilst everybody else plays defensive. Uh, back to the point Alex made earlier, this sounds a bit like the Marquette one. Really, really strange things happening there. Leda, uh, you had the next one? Simon, you made Brex sound like Brexit, and I wanted to cry about three times during that. Well, it was... You know, no, it's, it's just the card for like every, everyday expenses for small businesses that's really, really interesting and actually quite cool. A bit like Spendesk and Soldo and others. Vero Money has raised $419 million in funding over the past two years and currently provides a range of savings, loans, and account-based services through a relationship with a bank called Bank. It is poised to become the first and only fully digital bank to receive a national charter this summer, after which it will expand its services to offer credit cards, loans, and additional saving products. This round was their Series D, and investors including existing investor The Rise Fund, which was founded by U2's Bono with movie producer Jeff Skoll and TPG. I still think my investors are cooler. Simon, over to you. <laughs> uh, story from Bloomberg. Western Union is bidding again to buy MoneyGram. Um, it's offered to buy the money transfer outfit, but uh, nothing is yet finalized. Two companies have been rivals for decades, but more recently have faced up to competition from younger digital outfits. And this could be a way to consolidate their enterprises against those competitors. MoneyGram was almost bought in 2017 by China's Ant Financial, but the $1.2 billion agreement failed to get past the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US. Since then, it struck a deal with Ripple, which agreed to invest up to $50 million as part of a two-year partnership that will see MoneyGram use Ripple's XRP digital currency for cross-border payment and foreign exchange settlement. Jingle Pay to launch Neobank in the UAE. JinglePay brings elements of social payments to mobile wallets backed by cash accounts for instantaneous payments and easy money transfers to friends and family. JinglePay has digitized the onboarding process and customer due diligence to cover 7,600-plus 7, government IDs in 160 countries. Only 8% of the adults in the Arab world belong to the banked population, and financial inclusion is in high demand, with 168 million people lacking access to a basic bank account, a market which Jingle Pay wants to tap into. Jingle Pay is currently in the process of getting licensed in the UAE, Indonesia, the Philippines, and other GCC markets. It is expected to move to full-fledged operations in the UAE in the second half of 2020. And finally, this week we do not have a funny and finally story. There's no standout headline to bring you a laugh that seemed appropriate this week. But in the light of everything we said at the top of the show and the importance of diversity, education and inclusion, please do check out some of the previous episodes that highlight exactly this. In particular, Sam Moore's interview with Arlen Hamilton just last week in episode 430. Arlen's a founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital, a fund that is dedicated to minimizing funding disparities in tech by investing in high potential founders who are people of color, women, and or LGBT. Arlen built the company from the ground up while homeless. It's an absolutely incredible story full of hope. Backstage Capital has now raised more than $7 million and invested in more than 130 startup companies led by underrepresented founders. Listen back now to episode 430 and be inspired the same way we were. 
That wraps up this week's new show and what a week it's been. Thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Nikolai? I'm on Instagram and on LinkedIn on Twitter. So you can find me all over the place. <laughs> Shafali? Uh, so for Trulea, we're at Trulea.com. And for me personally, I'm on Twitter at, at Shafali Roy. Alex? We're Starlingbank.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Freeney. And Simon? Uh, you'll find us at 11fs.com. We have, of course, bit.ly forward slash openfinance2020 is where you'll find me or at SYTaylor on Twitter. And as for me, I am at Leader Glyptis on Twitter and LinkedIn or at 11fs Foundry on Twitter. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech, who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, pass the pod along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback for today's show or any other episode of the show in general, please find us on social media, search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or just email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to all of you. Goodbye.